Last year, we moved into flat four. We'd have people over almost every night and soon people would turn up completely uninvited, which we loved. We wanted some time to sit and catch up each week so we could chat about what it's like to be in a creative industry like music, film, theater, whatever. So we started a podcast. This is The Flat Forum. And this is season two. Remember, new episodes drop every Sunday at six and all our episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever your preferred podcast listening site may be. Today is someone a bit special. Three years ago, my brother and I attempted to drive to Mongolia from London in a shit car. My guest today was to be our cameraman. Three years on, he's toured extensively with Black Peaks as a photographer. He's toured extensively with the Spice Girls as a tech. He's worked with Stormzy, Dave, Ella Take That and Fallout Boy. And he's still found the time to pursue his other passions, mainly shedding light on the atrocities that go unnoticed in our world today. He has visited Afghanistan, Iraq, India, the Turkish coup, the Ukrainian front lines, the Calais refugee camps, and the list goes on. All off his own back, all for the purposes of documenting reality. And despite his photos speaking for themselves, his penmanship is flawless, filling the gaps of each scene so explicitly in each photograph's description. It's not only a pleasure to know this guy, but to watch his list of travel get longer and longer, and to watch people realize the stories he tells are real life makes him someone I admire very much. He invited me to his house to record this, and to top it all off, only arrived back from India yesterday after a 16-hour journey. Thank you so much, Sam Lees. Yep. That's you. That is me, yeah. I'm just thinking about the biscuits, though. What about the biscuits? <laughs> I brought biscuits today. Adam brought biscuits. Uh, they're really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out Foxes. How I've, you done? <laughs> I've only been eating, like, I haven't been eating good recently. How was India? India's India. It's uh, it's tricky. It's not an easy place sometimes to travel, and sometimes it is an easy place to travel. Like, Have you been there quite a lot then? I've been. That's my. This is my second trip. Mm-hmm. The first time I went was about six years ago. I did. Uh, I went over to do the the rickshaw run. So I drove. Yeah. Took took from Kerala to uh, to Shillong up in. So was that's about two thousand kilometers. Jesus. And why are we there this time? Yeah. Um, I'd originally wanted to go over to do some stories about the water crisis there. They've got they've got um, massive amounts of water shortages that look like they could end up causing India some serious problems in the next five years or so when they when they legit could run out. Yeah, the water shortage in India I've heard is atrocious, as in they get two hours of water sometimes in a week. Yeah, certainly places like Chennai um, and some parts of Jaipur and, and, all, and all over the place really. Um, urban planning hasn't been particularly great so the, the water table's looking like it's going to run out so that would be my original plan to um head over there and, and make some stories about that but when i got in touch with journalists on the ground they were saying oh well actually now uh monsoon has come however late and there's now flooding and i was like right okay that's makes it difficult to do a water shortage story when everywhere's flooded because it mm. from a from a photographer's standpoint it's quite difficult to sell <laughs> That Big water shortage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Boats. yeah, and yeah, goats on doors floating down the river. Um, wow. And then I said, okay, so I'll switch my focus and I'll, uh, I'll I'll do some stories about the the floods. And they said, okay, but by the time you come, the floods will have receded. No <laughs> so, way. So everyone would just be kind of like stoked. So um, I'd then been in the studio with Black Peaks, and they just recorded their new single, um, which is like their first new track that's come out. In, bloody ages right and i was thinking well i'm gonna be there anyway i have all my camera equipment how about i do the video for the new the new single so they flew there? the band out to you or were they no anyway? no it's a completely narrative driven um 
singles okay. uh, video so the band aren't in it yeah um i just i was just given free reign to sort of write and direct uh, the whole thing it's a fantastic video though thanks it was really stressful really <laughs> yeah because <laughs> i didn't i didn't have any idea really uh, uh, how i was trying to tell the story um before i even went so mm. i had a chat with their manager matt at uh, gatwick airport on the phone and we were kind of like he was like, what's it going to look like? And I, I said, oh, well, I want to make it look a bit like something Tom Welsh would do, who's like a nice British director who does a lot of works with While She Sleeps and yeah. um, architects and stuff like that. Great, uh, visually st stunning stuff. Um, I said I didn't want it to look like a sort of YouTube travel blog video with like loads of twatty transitions and like drone shots and you, do you know what I mean? The, the transitions, everyone's like, whoa, man, that's such a cool transition. Whoa, how to bring your YouTube videos alive with these five slick transitions in Adobe Premiere Pro. Oh, you made those videos. What's up, everybody? I'm Peter McKinnon. <laughs> yeah, Peter's a big fan of the podcast. Is he? <laughs> no, you're safe. Not anymore. I love Peter McKinnon. Um, I hate the idea that any cinematic video has to be in slow motion and shot with loads of crazy... Grading. Uh, well, his grading. And <laughs> that you can buy from his Patreon. And, uh, yeah, I got stuck I got stuck in a snowstorm in the Himalayas the other day mm -hmm. on a motorbike. I didn't know how to ride. And Why are we on a motorbike in the Himalayas? Uh, up there, there's a road called the Kandalar Pass, mm. which is the highest motor rideable right. road in the world. So... The pa did you make it as far as the Pamir Highway? Yeah. You did. So yeah. the Pamirs are the second highest road in the world. <clears throat> and uh, the Candelar Pass is the highest. But I've wanted to do that trip on an Enfield Classic 350 for oh, like wow. 10 years. So mm. it was quite uh, quite cool. So we rode that over a couple of days. But you snowstorm. But on the second day, we got to about 4,000 meters and it started snowing. And I was wearing like Levi's and a jumper <laughs> and some pair of Vans, you know. <laughs> And uh, I was cut, I sort of, I was actually had a layer, like an inch thick layer of snow down my front. I couldn't oh. feel my hands, my, je my knee joints felt like they were on fire and the condensation on my helmet, I couldn't see the road. And if I lifted my helmet up, it was a white out from the snow, so I couldn't see. And then the condensation started going, turning into ice inside my helmet and I was absolutely shitting myself. Well, you were still driving? Yeah, I was riding, I must have been going at about five kilometers an hour, like... Because on on one side of you is a sheer vertical drop to your death. And I was like, this is awful. And we pulled up at this army checkpoint. They were saying you can't really go over the pass. It's too dangerous. I'm like, okay, so what, what's going to happen? And they said, well, if it keeps snowing, we close the road. And if they close the road, you can't, can't leave. You can't get... There's no other way. You know, right. this isn't... There's not like a diversion route. It's, it's the Kandalar Pass. So we just had to suck it up. It was like... I have like a certain communications protocol I use when I'm traveling. If I go, if I say to someone, I have to say if I'm going to be off comms for more than like 48 hours. Right. If I'm off comms for more than the amount of time I said I'm going to be off comms, then uh, then there's certain things happen. Like what things? Th certain phone calls. People will make phone calls to like my insurance company and uh, the embassy and stuff like that. So just it's just for if you're in certain, it's just a safe thing to do really. It's sensible. Um, you're the only person I know with a, uh, if I'm off comms for more than 48 hours, I might be dead plan. Yeah. I mean, everyone should have a comms plan. If you go on the Rory Peck Trust website, it's all in there. You can just, you know, write your own stuff. It's, mm -hmm. but I did, I did a 
training for combat photographers in Spain a few years ago. It was part of our uh, workshop. They taught us to do all this, all this stuff. So okay, so even if I'm traveling to sort of sensible places, I mean, if I'm going to Paris or something, which I do a lot, then uh, I'm not, I'm not chucking that in. But uh, but yeah, if I'm in the Himalayas or and especially like Kashmir, still Kashmir, you know. Yeah. So even lay safe, but I think it's just it's the better air on the side of caution. You know, always. We've kind of understand you do photography mainly. That's like your main gig. You do yeah. a lot of other stuff as well. But I want to know, so like way, going way back, have you always been into photography? Or like were you into music? What was the, what was the thing when you were 12? Uh, well, I, yeah, when I was 12, I was just playing in the school wind band, uh, playing clarinet, which is what I've done since I was like... Fantastic instrument. Yes, yeah, it's, it's fantastic indeed. Um, I think I started playing that when I was seven or something. I guess I had to play clarinet because the conductor at the high school needed clarinet players in his band. So five years before I'd even joined that school, I have to play clarinet. Mm. This is, this is weird because it's state school. So you don't think it's going to have that kind of hierarchy. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, if you go to the, if you go to that village, the school in the village and the and Mr. Brammer at the high school needs clarinet players, you're fucking, you're fucking learning clarinet. that clarinet. <laughs> yeah. Cause then uh, we used to go on tour like every summer we'd go and play gigs in Spain or France or Italy yeah my school did the same Czech Republic yeah it was an incredible experience my mum would give me little disposable cameras to take with me mm. and uh, I'd finish mine and then buy everyone else's off them with uh, my pocket money <laughs> are you serious just take loads of pictures yeah but they didn't click it wasn't years later until I realised I did that and I was like oh I used to do that maybe that meant I've always loved photography but <laughs> I think I just like taking candid pictures of stuff um, or pictures of things not land. I don't like taking pictures of landscapes. There's so, no story in a landscape. Not true, but I'm just not good at it. Okay. There can be story in a landscape. It depends on what the landscape is. Well, uh, you mentioned you were in bands at school as well. Like, yeah, bands, yeah. Right? I started playing in like uh, emo bands and stuff. So why did that start? I mean, it, when did I? When was I last playing a band? When I was at uni, I suppose. So I haven't. Yeah, I haven't played in a band for. Uh, six years I guess yeah I stopped when I went on my first tour working for a bank called Canterbury I think I'd stopped right. playing around then what was it what were you doing on the tour not playing I was the lighting engineer for okay. a band called Canterbury I at uni I started doing lights and then um just for fun or like on your course uh for well I was working in a nightclub as a bar back like refilling the fridges and the ice and stuff like that it's a venue called The Haunt it's a really cool like 400 cap sort of club uh, club mm. venue and uh, I was super lazy, but my best one of my best friends at uni was uh, was the manager. He didn't want to fire me, so he said, "Can you learn to do the lighting desk?" And then that's how I started touring, basically. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. I did that for like two years and got a tour, and uh, I've been yeah, I've been doing that now ever since, really. Doing the lighting thing or just tech in generally? Generally, like uh, I do lighting and uh, set carpentry on tour or right. photography. So mm. uh, the the set carpentry actually pays the best. Okay. After Canterbury, I just knocked around tours and did some shitty ones here and there with some bands that I didn't really get along with. And but you say that like, how do you get a tour? Um, I know just, heaps of people like my, like for example, um, I've got a friend who's a live sound guy, mm. and he's just starting out on the road to misery. Um, but how do how do you get your first tour? Obviously, you just say you fell into it. But then after that, after that finishes, I've got loads of friends on tour who are like. I don't know what I'm going to do when this ends. Like, what do I do when this gig stops? 
You try not to spend too money, much money on Jameson. You wait for mm. the phone to ring. You just wait for the phone. Oh, man, yeah, I've got nothing. I mean, I've got nothing now until January, like like production wise, like like teching. Right. No, no teching work uh, at all in the calendar. I don't think. Unless Spice Girls want to go to Australia or something, mm. or uh, Stormzy maybe does a tour, but we'll see. I mean, he's got some tracks out, but you just have to read the papers and figure out if you're going to get a job. You know? Really? Yeah. Like with with Spice Girls, if they were going to go tour again after their, their UK run they've done, because they keep saying they will, saying they won't. The only way I know if I've got a job is by reading the fucking tabloids. What was your first like moment in that world where you were like, fuck, this is quite a big deal? Uh, I did uh, Fall Out Boy at Reading and Leeds Festival. They were headlining last year and I was their set carpenter. It's like me and one other guy just left to put this show together to go out on telly, you know, live. Mm. It's on live TV. It's in front of 60,000 people. We had 10 minutes to make it happen and I was like, and they paid us fucking loads of money and I was really? like, oh. <laughs> this is what this could be. I was like, oh, this is Okay. This is a tangible career, actually, now. Yeah, I, you know? I think so many people I've spoken to, even on this podcast, have had that exact moment. Like, oh, you can do this as a job. Yeah, because mm. you you can get paid enough where you don't have to shit yourself when you're not working, <laughs> as long as you're sensible with your money. Oh, yeah. Because, it, because it, there isn't always work, you know. There's not always... Um, you're not going to be working 365 days a year or even, you know, get your get your time in so you have to um, make hay while the sun shines and it's a young man's game I think I'd only want to tour for another 10 years max yeah do you enjoy it um yes for now but I yeah. can see myself not enjoying it in the future oh definitely it's a big strain on mental health uh, you drink too much you smoke too much you swear too much do drugs too much uh, you don't sleep nearly remotely near enough to maintain a healthy mind so it's just it's bad for you what was it like getting the Stormzy call and the Dave call but the Stormzy call the Dave call was with, the Stormzy call was insane because I'm a huge Stormzy fan Aren't so when uh, their production manager Joel Stanley emailed me and said yo do you want to do this I was like what at Glastonbury like Stormzy at Glastonbury I lost my shit um, and I thought Guess I had like a week off after Spice Girls to do it. A guy in Spice Girls hooked me up with it because he did Gorillas with Joel for a long time. Oh yeah, and then oh we uh, got we got Craig Duffy coming on. In fact, that episode that that's the first episode of the season. How do you record them all in advance? I do this time because last time I nearly had a mental breakdown. Yeah, I bet. I did a week by week eight season podcast. Oh, and there was six guests on each podcast. Six guests. Mm. You've changed the format. Now. Havoc. That's chaos. I can, yeah. My mate Chris had done Gorillas with Joel for a long time and Joel was looking for someone and Chris put me forward for it. So then I went and did that. And then uh, I got an email from Joel saying, oh, by the way, we're going to stick around on the Saturday at Glastow and then Sunday we're going to do Dave on the other stage. Holy crap. And well, I would have said that now. I've seen Top Boy and know who Dave is. But at the time I didn't know who Dave was because it's just Dave. I, I'm a bit... 
Yeah. Sorry, it's not Mel, so I didn't know. <laughs> I just like Storms and Skepta and Kano, apparently, like, a, you know. And then it was like the other stage. I was like, that sounds like such a ridiculous email. You're doing Dave on the other on stage. The other stage. Like, which other stage? <laughs> it's Glastonbury. There's like a hundred stages. Who's Dave? It turned out it was a guy called Dave and the stage is called the other stage. <laughs> yeah, so I built the skull. That's the guy. He's got a 12-foot skull. Everyone's yeah. seen it now on telly because of that kid who came on stage. Alex from Glasto. Alex from Glasgow. Have you heard his song? Has he put a track out? Has oh, he? gotcha. It's Alex from Glasgow. Banger. Like I said, when the sun shines. <laughs> he is capitalised. He was absolutely off his tits. Eh? Was he really? Yeah. And it's funny, like Dave said to him, wait for me back. <laughs> wait for me. I will chat when I come off stage. And he come off stage and our security was like, get the fucking kid out of here now. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, but he said, it's like, I don't care what he fucking said, mate. He doesn't make the rules. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you. Well done. Get out. <laughs> fucking brilliant. Rock and roll, eh? So, but did you lose your shit when you got the Stormzy call? Did you cry? I didn't cry, but there was a moment in rehearsals where he started doing Shut Up, which was like the original track, you know. And uh, it was insane. He's the best person I've ever worked for as well, like, in terms of treatment. Like, I really hurt my back on the first day building the set. And uh, the whole production company was just, like, Joel and, and Stormzy, I guess, by default, were really great. They got me, like, a... They brought me out a chiropractor and an acupuncturist and stuff. And I could just sort of come in in the morning and hobble in and try and mop up Stormzy's sweat. And then I could go and lie down for the rest of the day. And they got me chiro and acupuncture. And I was laid up and on loads of drugs. And But instead of firing me, they were like, we'll just make you learn to delegate better. So I just delegated more. And uh, I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are artists or songwriters or they're the on the or session guys are the performing side of things yeah and a lot of them are in the position of power like storms it's not on that level obviously yeah um and i think that's a lesson in look after your crew yeah oh 100 percent. and he'd show up 20 minutes early for rehearsals and be there half an hour after everybody left still right. asking questions with his with the director showing up early like if I, every time i've talked to anyone about that who's worked on that level of the industry that oh yeah storms showed up 20 minutes early their jaws hit the floor like it's insane Mm. like no one does that dude fucking works so love him or hate him i love him but love him or hate him you have to sort of respect that that is grafting man what's the best what's the best thing you can do as an artist to look after your crew show up on time finish on time is good that's a big one for me too like i don't like if you if you've got rehearsals till five and then at like quarter to five they're like should we run through the set again you're like <laughs> I've been here way longer than you today. You know, you've done, you've been here for an hour and a half, been here for 10 hours. Like. And I think to be honest, at a point it's the same in, cause I do a lot of writing sessions at a point, nothing good is going to happen. No. Cause you, you can't, your brain just can't do that anymore. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you did, <laughs> you did Glasto, which is unreal. <laughs> uh, you also did LRA and take that and just heaps of stuff. But mm. I mean, one of the things that sets you apart from most people, like most people, if they're doing those gigs, they're like, Hey, I'm a, I'm in the music industry. This is what I do. Mm-hmm. But you don't. You go to places of extreme human suffering and put your life at risk to tell stories of other people. How did you make the decision to go that way in your life? That's a, that is a bold decision. I get asked that a lot, and I honestly can't remember. Like when I, uh, when I first decided I wanted to go to war or something like that. Mm. 
This sounds quite self-righteous, actually. I don't. I feel a bit stupid talking about it in some way, in some respects, because I haven't done it for two years. I don't. So I'm. I, I feel, uh, sometimes feels like I'm still talking about this. But you know those guys that are like, "Oh, take me back." Yeah. No. No. It doesn't at all. <laughs> or something like that. It's. It's. I don't know. Uh, um, I haven't found the right project uh, in the last couple of years. So mm. I don't. I don't. I've never wanted to go somewhere just for the sake of going. Um, yeah, I read. Dom, uh, I guess I read Don McCullen's autobiography. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a fantastic book. Uh, and things like Dispatches by Michael Kerr, um, which is great. Uh, I grew up reading like Hemingway and um, and George Orwell's, you know, books yeah. like Homage to Catalonia and For Whom the Bell Tolls and and things like that, which are their. Um, sort of their their experiences of but they're writers not photographers but their experiences of being in war and stuff and it was quite visceral and i think honest and at the time as many people do it's quite you romanticize of course you romanticize yeah i mean as a kid this sounds horrendous because you're naive as a kid playing call of duty we all did right we were like oh i want to i want to go and do this this is exciting right yeah yeah, I was really into the art. I really wanted to be a photographer then. I can't... And I looked at joining, like, as a Navy photographer when I was at university. But you couldn't just join straight away and become, like, a photographer in the Marines. You'd have to join the Marines mm. and then try and do all the normal Marine stuff and then specialise. And I was like, well, I don't really want to do <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, so... and Yeah, and you might not even get the job and then you're just in the Marines. Nah, <laughs> oh, fuck. Which would be great, you know, those guys are fucking well hard. So, that, you know, that's cool in some respects, but um, I just wanted to be a photographer. But then uh, the Calais refugee camps sort of propped up, which were called the jungle yeah, uh, in popular uh, culture. And um, I bought a, my first digital camera and went over and started photographing in there, really. Just off your own back, no training, no safety, nothing. No, I had no idea what I was doing. I probably Googled how to be a photojournalist or something like that. Or, um, or how That's to, nuts. Or, right? or like Googling war photographer jobs as if there's like a jobs board. <laughs> like typing it into Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, and like... Um, <laughs> war photographer. Uh, yeah, so I photographed the Calais jungle and then... Uh, what was that like? Uh, it was rough. It was one of the worst refugee camps I've ever been to in the world, actually. The services, no one wanted to take responsibility for it. The, um, the British government said, well, it's in France, so it's France's problem. And the French government said, well, it's everyone is only there because they're trying to get to England, so it's your problem. So the services were awful, and it was, it was just a horrible, horrible place of sort of despair. And, but also positivity, like people had set up restaurants and shops and churches and mosques and uh, barber shops and all sorts of stuff like that. What was it like being, I suppose... <clears throat> Knowing that tomorrow you go home. Oh, it's great, wasn't it? Well, I don't know. For me, you but, know. But I mean, it's a whole place to be. But also at the time, it was so overwhelming. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I was just there with a the camera. And it's kind of, I was kind of naive. I don't know what I was expecting to do. And then, so I just took, took all these essentially just candid photos with no, with no uh, story essentially they were just oh here's people in a camp you know which is a bit vulgar in some respects it's kind of um poverty porn as some people call it mm. which i yeah you know, i was young and stupid and i thought that was what you do um and i guess i lacked an empathy and and stuff but i ended up sending them all to the guardian picture desk 
uh, uncompressed. So I sent like an email, which must have been about 50 megabytes. Just <laughs> here's all my pictures with no explanation, no captions. Uh, nothing, here it is. Just like here's some photos from the jungle. And obviously they never replied to me because I didn't know that you just don't do that kind of thing. So it was a learning experience. I ended up going back. Um, but not many people would know that you don't do that thing. That's what, like, in my industry, we're told, in the music industry, sorry, we're told a lot of the time by people that, oh, I got where I got by cold emailing everyone. Yeah, I'm sure that works in every industry. But, um, un- yeah. Yeah. But if you're still, you have to, that, that works great if you've got something to sell. Yeah. Something good. Yeah. What I was pestering newspapers and magazines with was rubbish. Okay. So, uh, like, just, yeah meaningless photos from a refugee camp there was no angle it was just it was i suppose it was spot news essentially they were quite emotionally charged pictures though um yeah i've never had a problem doing that but it's just tying them together into like what does this actually mean what are yeah. you what are you trying to say mm. i didn't know what i was trying to say i didn't have a um i didn't yeah i just didn't know what i was doing really where does that urge to tell a story come from uh, to, to to show these people's stories I don't know I don't I've always had this sort of overbearing sense of when things are totally unjust and found it really like if this if something seems unfair it it fucks with me like loads like I just find it really frustrating um and I guess from that like I want to tell people stories in that respect I've also just been i'm incredibly fascinated by war and why we go to war and what happens at war and um but the the more sort of stuff i see like that changes my the direction and the way in which i interpret it i used to just want to go and embed you know like follow soldiers around and photograph soldiers in fighting but actually that's such a small i learned in iraq and and ukraine that that's such a small like look into what war actually is it's the it's the cool bit, in inverted air quotations, but actually um, the human uh, side of combat is is is, is, um, is a far larger aspect that needs to be told. It's just as important to be told, but it's just not as glamorous. To well, let's go to that then. So you come back from the jungle and you, you sort of now have some context of where you weren't doing how it didn't feel right exactly what you were doing so how then did that translate into you thinking okay maybe i need to to transition this into like a war zone environment was it just curiosity or yeah i just wanted to keep doing it and i just i I like telling stories or trying to tell stories and uh, i i wanted to do it better and uh, in a way that mattered um and could i guess somewhat sometimes naively i thought in a way that could make a difference so some friends of mine were going to iraq some photographers I know, and they said, "Do you want to? Um, do you want to come along? It's always, you know, it's safer if you have a battle buddy, as we call it, or whatever." So, uh, yeah, I went along with those guys in twenty sixteen or fifteen. I can't. Twenty sixteen, it must have been the end of the Mosul, right near the end of the Mosul offensive in northern Iraq, when um, Iraqi special forces and coalition forces were pushing ISIS out of their last stronghold in northern Iraq. So uh, we went to cover that, basically. And whilst I had originally thought I would go and embed, as I was saying before, with Iraqi Special Forces and follow the fighting and blah yada yada 
what I ended up focusing on mainly was uh, human stories in particular being um, what was happening to the families of the ISIS fighters once they'd been pushed out of Mosul. So the wives, the children, the, the mothers, the grandparents, yada, yada, yada. And what was happening was they were being picked up and put in these camps separate from everybody else that the Iraqi forces were calling uh, re-education camps, which is quite an ominous name, I think. It's quite Orwell. It is quite Orwellian, yeah. Um, so, but that, but they had access to, very limited access to services like clean water, uh, good sanitation, doctors, which were desperately needed. Um, and they weren't allowed to leave. So that actually... It's a prison. That isn't that isn't a yes. So that camp. and that comes under the comes under the Geneva Convention for the prevention of collective punishment of communities. Whereas, which is when uh, and you yeah you punish you punish a population based on the uh, acts of uh, a certain number of people within sure. that community. So it's a war crime. So uh, I started taking pictures there, and I I got the pictures published, and it, it felt like it made it it mattered. Mm. Who but, published it? Uh, Vice News published that. Yeah. So yeah, so that story didn't really seem to have any kind of effect publicly for for like a couple of years, and then the BBC reported on it a few years later. Uh, at diff- once that camp had closed, but at the time, I don't think p- publicly people were really ready to feel sympathetic towards ISIS towards any f- any any part of ISIS. Yeah. So. Whether that was the wives or children or not, some of these kids were fucking like toddlers. There's babies, toddlers, all seem to be under the age of thirteen or so. When, when, sorry to take it back. When so that first experience in Iraq, mm. um, I mean, firstly, well, how was that for you, a white man with no combat experience, no weapon, being in that environment? It's really exciting. Yeah. To be honest, um, I do. I, <laughs> And people have said it before, but as long as you have photographers, particularly and TV camera guys, like as long as you're looking through your viewfinder and you've got your shutter speed, your aperture, uh, and your ISO to think about, it kind of acts as a shield between you and reality. So it's not as visceral in some ways. I guess you're looking at images through your viewfinder in the same way as you look at an image on a computer. Yeah, I'm trying to compose. uh, And I think that makes it less scary. Okay. It's very scary. Yeah. Because there's people shooting at you, but uh what's that like? Uh it's loud. Mostly. Mostly loud and it's over very quickly in my experience. Okay. I've not been in long drawn out gunfights and stuff, just sort of sporadic exchanges and bit of shelling and stuff like that, but shelling's unpleasant because it's so random. You can't just hide behind a concrete wall and it's just up, up, up. Mm. You know, it can't. Yeah, it comes down quite indiscriminately. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's very exciting. Um, but I've never done any good work in a in a combat. Like any, I've taken cool pictures of guys with guns, right? But that's worthless. I disagree. In I'm not sure what I I I don't know what worth they they are. The photos that you've you've taken in Iraq and Afghanistan. No, of, of combat. Oh, sorry, in of, Iraq. Of, of combat. Yes. Um, I'm not sure of their value. The, the the the, I mean, in my opinion, having seen the work that you posted, um, 
the difference between you and a normal war photographer or the difference between you and a normal journalist is that the photos that you post are human and you keep saying human so there's a photo specifically of a uh a fighter with his <clears throat> rifle aimed out of a window and there's something about the expression on the faces of the people you capture that says that isn't a, a nameless soldier that's about to die in a war zone. It's like, that's a person. And and the way that you frame your photos and the juxtaposition between a group of soldiers smiling in a, in a war-torn apartment or whatever it is, that's so emotive. And no one I've seen has captured that before. Not in this way. Hmm. Do you see I what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. You, they have personality. Like I guess, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I obviously have to self-critique all the of time. Of course, of course. We never improve, so. But uh, thanks. I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. No, 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 no. That's just, that, no, that's just my observations of your work. It, it's, it's very, um, I don't get emotionally triggered by films often or except about time because that is tragic. Um, but about time? No, it's, it's, his dad dies. Uh, <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> but but l- looking at your images is 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 triggering. It is it's hard. It, it makes you think about something that just seeing a soldier with a gun doesn't. Cool, because I want people to throw up their breakfast. Basically, I don't know what what tour this was on that you went on, but um, do you mind if I ask about? You posted a photo that was marked explicit on my Instagram, and I had to unblock. And it's the photo of a uh, a dead body, essentially. What 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 was the, what was that and what was the decision you made to post it? Why did why that decision? Um, that was the body of an ISIS fighter in Mosul. Okay. Um, uh, it was a very bizarre situation because I'd not seen straight like head on face to face a corpse yet. I don't think. And but I was at a trauma stabilization point or a TSP with some Iraqi special forces guys, and one of them was like, "Come with me. I want to show you something." This was at the, uh, outside the Grand Mosque of Al Azuri in, uh, in 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 Mosul, where the caliphate was declared by uh, Al Baghdadi. Remember the video, Alhamdulillah, and he's mm-hmm. shaking his finger. And, um, I was walking in his footsteps down the street uh, to avoid IEDs and stuff like that. And in my mind, I knew that he was taking me to look at a body. And typically, you would think I don't really want to look at a dead body if I have the choice. Of course, you'd just be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so it's so yeah. So war's weird like that. If someone says, "Come on, we're going to look at a dead body." You're like, "All right." So I'm following him down the street, and I'd never seen one. I said, "Well, I've got to, I've got to sort of, I've got to see one eventually." So, and also, uh, I'm, you know, I'm here to do a job, and maybe I can document this. It's the realities of war, and blah blah blah. Paul, he's an ISIS guy. He was wearing, he wasn't wearing fatigues or anything like that. And, um, well, I was, I was told he was the nicest guy anyway. And uh, they invited me to spit on the body with them, which I declined because that's kind of vulgar. And uh, then, yeah, I photographed him from one side. His face was facing away from me. I, faced, mm. I photographed him from the direction his uh, of the back of his head. I couldn't go and photograph the side with the front of his head, and I couldn't. I just didn't. I just didn't. I don't know if I could or couldn't or did or didn't. I just, I just didn't go that side, so... I think it was in my head that I did. I didn't need to photograph that. I think no. the photograph works because you can see it's a dead body, but it's not. I don't think, in my opinion, it's not uh, graphic. But that's. <laughs> oh, I know what you mean. My perception of what a graphic image of, of war is is probably different to the average viewers, and I understand why 
uh, Instagram allow me to post that and still put it as illicit content, explicit content. So, but it's not. It's not um, to use intimate in in its its basic form. It's not an intimate photo of somebody. No, it's not. It's not particularly close up. No. Um, it's not graphic in its detail. Um, I think it's just the subject. It's the ma- the subject matter rather than the subject itself. It's what it represents. And D- does that get closer to telling the story that you wanted to tell? In some respects, yeah. I mean, that trip was very much and just trying to figure out for myself what war is, as well as like trying to tell stories. So photographing a dead body, I'm like, okay, so people die in war, and then I yeah, of picture, course, put a of picture course. of that, and it was sort of me experiencing that more necessarily than I'm taking this picture to to further this story that I'm working on. So, mm. but then you came back and you did you go to Iraq again or? Because I know you went to Ukraine for a bit as well, yeah, which is a far more close to home um, yeah. uh, front line. Yeah, it's much closer. It's basically uh, in Europe. Um, yeah, we went to Ukraine to cover the fighting uh, there. That was a lot more... I had a really big idea in my head about what I wanted to produce in Ukraine because it right. Was, it's right on our doorstep. It's, it's strategically important. It's uh, in Europe. No. No, I want to get in, do my job and get out with like as little happening as possible. It never happens like that. <laughs> but that's the idea. Like, I don't want to, do not want to go to jail. I've been, to, you know, I've been locked up in the UK just briefly. That sucks. You don't want to, is it? No, and that's the UK. That's the UK, right? So any room where you can hose down to clean is not somewhere I want to be locked in. <laughs> <laughs> so... But you're uh, on the Ukrainian front line reporting yeah. on the the fight between them and Russia? Pro-Russian separatists is the... Uh, PRS. Sure. I don't think it's ever been acronymed like that. Just did. Can I apply for them for some cash? <laughs> I haven't been paid by them yet, so probably not. <laughs> Nor have I. <laughs> um, all the MCPS is bloody... Oh, oh MCPS are the worst PPL. Oh, yeah, so they're having a bit of a tiff. There's a ceasefire called the Minsk Two Agreement, so there's not supposed to be any fighting, but there is... And, uh, yeah, we've gone to sort of document that and figure out what's going on. Because it's right on our doorstep, so it's interesting. So we ended up embedding with uh, some some uh, some Ukrainian army units at various contact points uh, along the front line there, around Donetsk and uh, Luhansk and stuff. Uh, saw a bit of fighting, didn't really do any work in that country at all of any value whatsoever. We did, uh, well, we did a big multimedia story. Uh, and no one wanted it. No one gave really? a shit. Yeah. The problem is, around the time that we were writing that story, uh, everything else in the world was far more interesting. Ukraine now is like a five-year-old thing. No one cares. Because it's, it's a isn't stalemate. It? It's tough. It's tough. To, it's a tough sell, which is a horrible way of putting it. But picture editors, nudist desk editors, foreign desk editors just weren't interested in Ukraine. That's crazy to me. We were on the list to be pitched at the Telegraph. I think something more interesting happened, basically. Hmm. I couldn't tell you what it was. After, after coming out from, from areas of such like intense emotion, you say you can distance yourself from it, but it is emotion, and, and then going into almost full-time touring photography and videography with bands and musicians. How, one, how do you make that transition? And, and two do you enjoy it do i enjoy the transition do, do you enjoy doing the music thing more than the, the is it as, as a fulfilling for you uh no no i mean but all my all the people i work with in the music industry know that okay. so it kind That's of good. makes it okay 
everyone I work with, I think, hires me because they like the work I do being so diverse. And they also understand that uh, that's my thing. Mm. And that makes a much easier working relationship. It means I have to suck way less dick, which is really nice. Um, you very rarely see me uh, posting any pictures of bands who I don't like uh, aren't the th three main ones I work for. Yeah. Like just being like, they're incredible. Cause I don't give a shit. Like if I like, uh, or, or saying, Oh, just with my pals, just with my, uh, just great with, night with great night with my mates. It's like, yeah, if uh, you're the thing with working with bands is, and I have, I completely understand and accept it. If you're not in the band, you're just there. So, and that's fine. That's their that's their thing, yep. right? And it's their art and it's their connection. Photographers sometimes get it twisted and think they're one of the gang, right? And that's a shame because you, you, you no band keep unless you're like Tom Pullen, who's with Ant Shikari. I'm. Uh, he's been with them for a long time, and I think he will be with them for a long time, and that's fine. But most bands, you've only you're only as uh, good as their last advance if they can afford you or, or this that. And the I, other I just think it's one of those things that there's it. It is an us and them thing because but the, the act of being in a band or being an artist is such an intimate game. It's very hard to share that share that bond with a freelancer on your tour. Photographer, you do have a very intimate. You travel on the same bus and mm. uh, or in the van, and like bands like Peaks mm. and stuff like that. Um, I'm really close close with and uh, employed serve. I'm really close with. I'm going to Sammy and Justine's wedding and and stuff like that. But uh, when it comes down to work stuff, you're not in the band. No, and uh, and that's great. I love that. For me, that's that's great. why it fits for you. I think there's a lot of producers as well that do the thing where they they produce a song. And then they think that it's their song. It's like no, no, no. You you facilitated someone else's art, yeah, right. And and it, it's sad because you've got to make the distinction. For me, being a full time producer is not what I want to do with my life. It's I love production and I love helping people tell their stories, but I want to do my thing too. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get the the line blurred where it's like, well, if I tag on to their story, it becomes my story. And it's no, you can't do that. No, it doesn't work. No, and it, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And, uh, and that's fine. That's cool. But just, you know, as long as you know that, you have a good work-life balance, you know. Uh, and you you don't get hurt. People get hurt, you know. When they take another photographer. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it like sometimes, you know, Black Peaks work with someone else sometimes. And I'd be a bit of a brat about it. Do you? Yeah. Do you I'll throw, no, I'll throw my... I'll, have a, I'll make sly little digs. Do you? Photographers are incredibly oh, bitchy. Very overexposed. <laughs> I don't know. I, no, oh, I just—it's oh, way, way more underhanded than that. But, Is it? Oh, it's technically a very good picture. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's exposed. They know how to use their camera. Oh, you took the lens cap off. <laughs> <laughs> but composition-wise, <laughs> just paragraphs. <laughs> I feel like it's lacking. You have the potential to include some juxtaposition within your compositional frame. And I just feel like you've totally missed the opportunity to do that. And uh, for that reason, I'm out. Uh, <laughs> I've been here for way long. I've taken up way too much of your time already. You today. have not. I've, what time is like, it? Bloody uh, hell. Yeah, we've been going for, for fair whack. Uh, so looping it back around to the start, you, um, you went to India to film the new Black Peaks video. When's that coming out? When can we listen for new music? 
the new yeah the video's out it came out like a week it came out whilst i was in india mm-hmm. i edited it at new delhi airport uh on a layover and then filed um hustle, hustle, hustle. so you can see that on youtube now it's called black Pete king i directed it's wild. and shot it it's very good uh that'll be on telly uh here and in Australia, apparently, at some point. I have to file that when we finish this. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of like my most ambitious directorial, fictional story. directorial story. Yeah, so it's certainly a step in the direction I want to go in. So it'd be cool if people see that. It's doing really well. It's had loads of views. It's fantastic. It really, like really that. is fantastic. And it, it we, this is going to be released in about two months' time. So it will have lots of views by then. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's had 16,000 this week, which is for That's me is wild. wild. Um, so, yeah, I'm stoked on that. I head out on tour with them tomorrow. We're going away for a month. This was the only day Sam had free for me in forever. Until next until january yeah which is unreal and you made time for this and i haven't seen you in three years this is well yeah but i just get to plug myself and also all the black peaks fans because i had to do press uh for some reason for the black peaks video the label wanted me to have some quotes for all the press about doing the video Mm. and at the time i didn't really want to say anything about it it all felt a bit like you're saying you're tacking onto someone else's story yeah i'm just making a music video it's their fucking song right right Without the song, there's no video. So, But without the video, there is a song. So I was kind of like, I don't want to get too self-absorbed about it. So I didn't want to write. So I just said, oh, I shot it on Fuji X-T3 with Fuji lenses. This guy helped me. I did it here. And I didn't want to get it all. Good. But uh, yeah, when you came at me with this idea, I was like, well, okay, maybe I can delve more a bit into my process about the video. And then in some ways, that's what the label wore off. But also, I just get to like talk about myself. Everyone loves doing that, right? We we finish every like episode with like a few basic questions, like about stuff. Quick okay? fire round, kind of quick fire. Um, first thing is, what would you say to someone getting into photography? Oh, buy hard drives. <laughs> I, d- I just bought three this week. Yeah, God. Uh, photography. Uh, stick to one focal length and learn that focal length. Say, like you've got a thirty-five mil or a fifty mil lens. And just stick with that. And if you're going out just walking and shooting or shooting something, try not to have every fucking lens with you because you'll spend more time switching lenses and fucking around than you will taking pictures. And if you just lose one prime focal length, you'll learn that focal length inside out. So without even... If you see something you want to photograph, you'll know where to stand before you even look through your viewfinder. And then you'll start seeing things framed in that focal length. And... I think that's a good way to go. I think that's a not so a less cliche piece of advice than That's a phenomenal piece of advice. Just go out and shoot, man. Which is obvious. Like <laughs> the best so, so, ten mistakes beginner photographers always make. <laughs> from Peter. From uh, from What's up everybody? Peter McKinnon here. We uh, um <laughs> We, you just got to get out and shoot. It's like, well, fucking yeah, if you want to get good in anything, you got to practice. So. We get a lot of people say, which I actually agree with, and I back from completely, is just do it. Because there's a lot of people who don't, yeah, don't but have if the confidence. If you're not just doing it, then you're fucking going to fail anyway. Because you, ha- you have to be able to just go and do it without someone telling you to go and it's, do it. We probably don't love it. Fortunately, because... And you've got to be willing to do it for fucking no money. And just forever. all the time. Forever. Yeah, yeah, for ages. I've been doing this shit for like... I've been fucking around the music business, like scraping pennies together for like 10 years. And finally this year, making a living, like without having to go and dig holes for a landscape gardener anymore or anything like that. I can just do music industry. 
Well done. Congrats. So you just have to keep doing it. Big up your bad self. That's Big it. Up, yeah, yeah, it's good. But also, I have to I have to do my own self-assessment tax returns and stuff like that. <laughs> um when when so what image do you see when you think oh i made it so a lot of people say when i'm on stage at wembley playing to a sold out crowd or when i am in the studio and i make something that makes someone dance what is your your visualization of fuck i did it um there's a few magazines i have in my mind that i'd love to work for but doing uh when i get the image in my head is an email from someone like the Atlantic or uh, the Observer uh, magazine or or Newsweek or Time saying we want you to go here and photograph this for us, yeah. and that's yeah. Instead that of be maybe instead of speculatively going and then hoping they'll take it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, what is your proudest achievement to date? I think publishing my work from Iraq. And how important that piece was and getting that published. And I wrote that as well. So that was kind of intense. That's something we didn't cover, but it, you should, I will get onto your Instagram and stuff, but people should go and check out your writing because it, it, it just adds a dimension to your photography that a picture can't in, in such a beautiful way. It also allows me to put up half rate pictures, but still sell the whole package. <laughs> um Finally, what would you tell 15-year-old Sam Lees? If I could sit 15-year-old Sam Lees down. Uh, don't smoke weed. Oh, no. No, fuck it. I mean, I don't, I don't smoke weed now, but I do. He used to smoke weed. Turned out right? Yeah. I, probably nothing. Really? I'd probably just let him get on with it. What are you going to do? I mean, if I tell him one thing not to fuck up, he'd fuck up something else instead. And I'd be in a different position. Um, I told him to start photographing then. I didn't start photographing properly at 15. Start sooner. Yeah, just start sooner. Oh, uh, do jujitsu. I'd have told him to do jujitsu. That's it. That's that's the only thing I'd have said. We start jujitsu now, so then you can be fucking sick by the time you're 29, instead of being crippled and still trying to get good. <laughs> <laughs> so I need to go and learn jujitsu. Uh, Everyone needs to go and learn jujitsu. It's the best thing in the world. Finally, what is your Instagram handle? Because I'm sure loads of people are going to want to check that out. It is at Peter McKinnon. (laughs) (laughs) It's at Sam Lee's photo. That's Sam Lee's, E-E-S, Lee's with uh, an S on the end of Lee. Photo, Sam Lee's photo. I've, yeah. In explaining it so many times, I've actually made it more convoluted and confusing. S-A-M-L-E-E-S-P-H-O-T-O. Correct. Nailed it. Sam, thank you so, 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 so much for doing this. That's it was fun. It is fun, I'm surprised right? we're finished. <laughs> it's been two hours, two and a half hours or something. But uh, yeah, no, it's cool. No, you, you, you have... I feel like I speak differently when I've got the mic. Like it turns you into a different person. You've got a great voice for it. Hmm. What's up, everyone? What's up, everybody? Sam Lee's here. We're going to go through our two-minute Tuesday top ten tips on how to not get killed in a war zone. Number one, do not go. And this is the end of this episode. Um, Thank you so much, Sam. Uh, Thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Flat Forum. If you love this podcast, it would mean the world if you could give us a review on iTunes. It helps us reach tons more people, and we'd really appreciate that effort. Thanks again to you. Thanks to you guys for listening, and we'll see you next Sunday at 6. Cheers. Smash that like and subscribe button.